Chapter Forty of Darnley by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty. With shame and sorrow filled, shame for his folly, sorrow out of time, for plotting an unprofitable crime. Dryden. We must once more take our readers back, if it be but for the space of a couple of hours, and introduce them into the bedchamber of a king a place we believe as yet sacred from the sacrilegious foot of any novelist in the castle of guine then and in the sleeping-room of henry the eighth king of england stood exactly opposite the window a large square bed covered with a rich coverlet of arras which hanging down on each side swept the floor with its golden fringe high overhead attached to the wall was a broad and curiously wrought canopy whereupon the laborious needle of some british penelope had chased with threads of gold the rare and curious history of that famous knight alexander the great who was there represented with lance in rest dressed in a suit of almain rivet armour overthrowing king darius who for his part being in a mighty fright was whacking on his clumsy elephant with his sceptre while the son of philip with more effect appeared pricking him up under the ribs with the point of his spear in one corner of the chamber ranged in fair and goodly order were to be seen several golden lavas and ewers together with fine diapers and other implements for washing while hard by was an open closet filled with linen and plate of various kinds with several venice glasses a mirror and a bottle of scented waters in addition to these pieces of furniture appeared four wooden settles of carved oak which with two large rich chairs of ivory and gold made up at that day the furniture of a king's bedchamber the square lattice window was half open letting in the sweet breath of the summer morning upon henry himself who with his head half covered with a black velvet nightcap embroidered with gold still lay in bed supporting himself on his elbow and listening to a long detail of grievances poured forth from the rotund mouth of honest jekin groby who by the king's command encumbered with his weighty bulk one of the ivory chairs by the royal bedside somewhat proud of having had a lord for the companion of his perils the worthy clothier enlarged mightily upon the seizure of himself and lord darnley by sir payan walton seasoning his discourse pretty thickly with my lord did and my lord said but omitting altogether to mention him by the name of sir osborne thinking it would be a degradation to his high companionship to do so though had he done so but once it would have saved many of the misfortunes that afterwards befell henry heard him calmly till he related the threats which sir payan held out to his prisoner in that interview of which jekin had been an unperceived witness then starting up mother of god cried the king what has become of the young gallant where is he ha huh, man now heaven defend us the base traitor has not murdered him ha huh? lord a mercy you've kicked all the clothes off your grace's worship cried jekin let me cover you up you'll catch a malplexy you will god's life answer me man cried henry what has become of the good lord osborne darnley ha huh? bless your grace that's just what i cannot tell you replied jekin for i never saw him after we got out send for the traitor have him brought instantly exclaimed the king see who knocks let no one in who dares knock so loud at my chamber door 
Proceeding round the king's bed, Jekin opened the door, against which someone had been thumping with very little ceremony. But in a moment the valiant clothes started back, exclaiming, "'Lords of mercy! It's a great man with a drawn sword!' "'A drawn sword!' cried Henry, starting up and snatching his own weapon, which lay beside him. But at that moment Francis ran in, and, holding his blade over the king, commanded him to surrender. "'I yield! I yield!' exclaimed Henry, delighted with the jest. "'Now by my life, my good brother of France, thou hast shown me the best turn ever prince showed another. I yield me your prisoner.' and as sign of my faith i beg you to accept this jewel so saying he took from his pillow where it had been laid the night before a rich bracelet of emeralds and clasped it on the french king's arm i receive it willingly answered francis but for my love and amity and also as my prisoner you must wear this chain and unclasping a jewelled collar from his neck he laid it down beside the english monarch Many were the civilities and reciprocations of friendly speeches that now ensued, and Henry, about to rise, would fain have called an attendant to assist him, but Francis took the office on himself. "'Come, I will be your valet for this morning,' said he. "'No one but I shall give you your shirt, for I have come over alone to beg some boons of you.' "'They are granted from this moment,' replied Henry. "'But do you say you came alone? Do you mean unattended?' "'With but one faithful friend,' answered the French king, "'one who not a week ago saved my life by the valour of his arm. "'Tis the best knight that ever charged a lance, and the noblest heart. "'He is your subject, too.' "'Mine?' cried Henry, with some surprise. "'How is he called? What is his name? "'Say, France, and we will love him for his service to you.' First, hear how he did serve me,' replied Francis and while the English monarch threaded the intricate mazes of the toilet, he narrated the whole of his adventure with Schoenvelt, which not a little interested Henry, the knight errantry of whose disposition took fire at the vivid recital of the French king, and almost made him fancy himself on the spot. "'A gallant knight!' cried he at length, as the king of France detailed the exploits of Sir Osborne, a most gallant knight on my life but say my brother what is his name slife man let us hear it i long to know him his name replied francis with an indifferent tone but at the same time fixing his eyes on henry's face to see what effect his answer would produce his name is sir osborne maurice a cloud came over the countenance of the english king ha said he thoughtfully jealous perhaps in some degree that the splendid chivalrous qualities of the young knight should be transferred to the court of france it is like him it is very like him for courage and for feats of arms i who have seen many good knights have rarely seen his equal pity it is that he should be a traitor nay nay my good brother of england answered francis i will avouch him no traitor but of unimpeachable loyalty all i regret is that his love for your noble person and for the court of england should make him wish to quit me but to the point my first boon regards him he seeks not to return to your royal favour with honour stained and faith doubtful but he claims your gracious permission to defy his enemies and to prove their falsehood with his arm if they be men let them meet him in the fair field if they be women or churchmen lame or in any way incompetent according to the law of arms let them have a champion 
the best in france or england to regain your favour and to prove his innocence he will defy them be they who they may and here at your feet i lay down his gage of battle so confident in his faith and worth that i myself will be his godfather in the fight he waits here in the corridor to know your royal pleasure henry thought for a moment he was not at all willing that the court of francis already renowned for its chivalry should possess still another knight of so much prowess and skill as he could not but admit in sir osborne yet the accusations that have been laid against him and which nobody who considers them the letter of the duke of buckingham and the evidence of wilson the bailiff can deny were plausible still rankled in the king's mind notwithstanding the partial explanation which lady katrine bulmer had afforded respecting the knight's influence with the rochester rioters remembering however that the whole or greater part of the information which wolsey had laid before him had been obtained either directly or indirectly from sir payan walton he at length replied by my faith i know not what to say it is not wise to take the sword from the hand of the law and trust to private valour to maintain public justice more than we can avoid but you my royal brother shall in the present case decide the accusations against this sir osborne maurice are many and heavy but principally resting on the testimonies produced by a certain wealthy and powerful knight one sir payan walton who though in other respects most assuredly a base and disloyal villain can have no enmity against sir osborne and no interest in seeking his ruin last night by my order this sir payan was brought hither from calais on the accusations of that good fool pointing to jekin groby you comprehend enough of our hard english tongue to hear him examined yourself and thus you shall judge if you find that there is cause to suspect sir payan and his witnesses though it be but in having given the slightest colour of falsehood to their testimony let sir osborne's arm decide his quarrel against the other knight but if their evidence be clear and indubitable you shall yield him to be judged by the english law what say you is it not just the king of france at once agreed to the proposal and henry turned to jekin who had stood by listening with his mouth open wonderfully edified at hearing the two kings converse though he understood not a word of the language in which they spoke fly to the page man cried the king tell him to bid those who have sir payan walton in custody bring him hither instantly by the back staircase but first send to the reverend lord cardinal requiring his counsel in the king's chamber haste dally not i say i would have them here directly jekin hurried to obey and after he had delivered the order returned to the king's chamber where henry while he completed the adjustment of his apparel related to francis the nature of the accusation against sir osborne and the proofs that had been adduced of it the king of france however with a mind less susceptible of suspicion would not believe a word of it maintaining that the witnesses were suborned and that the letter was a forgery he contended it would most certainly appear that sir payan had some deep interest in the ruin of the knight the sound of many steps in the antechamber soon announced that some one had arrived quick cried henry to jekin groby get behind the arras good jekin after we have dispatched this first business i would ask the traitor some questions before he sees thee ensconce thee man ensconce thee quick at the king's command poor jekin lifted up the corner of the arras by the side of the bed and hid himself behind 
and though a considerable space existed between the hangings and the wall, the worthy clothier having, as we have hinted, several very protuberant contours in his person, his figure was somewhat discernible still, swelling out the stomach of King Solomon and the hip of the Queen of Sheba, who were represented in the tapestry as if one was crooked and the other had the dropsy. Scarcely was he concealed when the page threw open the door, and Cardinal Wolsey entered in haste, somewhat surprised at being called to the king's chamber at so early an hour. But the sight of the French king sufficiently explained the summons, and he advanced, bending low, with a proud affectation of humility. "'God bless and shield your graces both,' said he. "'I feared some evil by this early call, but now I find the occasion was one of joy.' I do not regret the haste that apprehension gave me. Still, we have business, my good Wolsey, replied Henry, and of some moment. My brother of France here espouses much the cause of the Sir Osborne Maurice who lately sojourned at the court, and won the goodwill of all, both by his feats of arms and his high-born and noble demeanour, who, on the accusations given against him to you, Lord Cardinal, by Sir Payam Wileton, was banished from the court, nay judged worthy of attachment for treason the king in addressing wolsey instead of speaking in french which had been the language used between him and francis had returned to his native tongue and good jekin groby hearing what passed concerning sir osborne maurice was seized with an intolerable desire to have his say too lord a mercy cried he popping his head from behind the tapestry your grace's worship don't know silence cried henry in a voice that made poor jekin shrink into nothing said i not to stay there ha huh? the worthy clothier drew back his head behind the arras like a frightened tortoise retracting its noddle within the shelter of its shell and henry proceeded to explain to wolsey in french what had passed between himself and francis the cardinal was at that moment striving hard for the king of france's favour nor was his resentment towards Sir Payen at all abated, though the arrangements of the first meeting between the kings had hitherto delayed its effects. Thus all at first seemed favourable to Sir Osborne, and the minister himself began to soften the evidence against him, when Sir Payen, escorted by a party of archers and a sergeant-at-arms, was conducted into the king's chamber. The guard drew up across the door of the ante-room, and the knight, with a pale but determined countenance, and a firm, heavy step, advanced into the centre of the room, and made his obeisance to the king's. Henry, now dressed, drew forward one of the ivory chairs for Francis, and the sergeant hastened to place the other by its side for the British monarch. When, both being seated, with Wolsey by their side, the whole group would have formed as strange but powerful a picture as ever employed the pencil of an artist. The two magnificent monarchs, in the pride of their youth and greatness, somewhat shadowed by the eastern wall of the room, the grand and dignified form of the cardinal, with his countenance full of thought and mind, the stern, determined aspect of Sir Payan, his whole figure possessing that sort of rigidity indicative of a violent and continued mental effort with the full light streaming harshly through the open casement upon his pale cheek and haggard eye and passing on to the king's bed and the dressing-robe he had cast off upon it showing the strange scene in which henry's impetuosity had caused such a conclave to be held 
These objects formed the foreground, while the sergeant-at-arms standing behind the prisoner and the guard drawn up across the doorway completed the picture. Till, gliding in between the arches, the strange figure of Sir Caesar the astrologer, with his cheeks sunken and livid, and his eye lighted up by a kind of wild maniacal fire, entered the room, and, taking a place close on the right hand of Henry, added a new and curious feature to the already extraordinary scene. "'Sir Payam Walton,' said Sir Henry, "'many and grievous are the crimes laid to your charge, and of which your own conscience must accuse you as loudly as the living voices of your fellow-subjects. At least, so by the evidence brought forward against you, it appears to us at this moment.' most of these charges we shall leave to be investigated by the common course of law but there are some points touching which if they involve our own personal conduct and direction we shall question you ourself to which questions we charge you on your allegiance to answer truly and without concealment to your grace's questions replied sir payan boldly i will answer for your pleasure though i recognize here no established court of law but first I will say that the crimes charged against me ought to be heavier than I, in my innocence, believe them, to justify the rigour with which I have been treated. An ominous frown gathered on the king's brow. Ha! cried he, forgetting the calm dignity with which he had at first addressed the knight. No established court of law, thou sayest well. We have not the power to question thee. Ha! Who then is the king? Who is the head of all magistrates? who holds in his hand the power of all the law by our crown we have a mind to assemble such a court of law as within this half hour shall have thy head struck off upon the green sir payan was silent and wolsey replied to the latter part of what he had said with somewhat more calmness than henry had done to the former you have been treated sir said he with not more rigour than you merited nor with more than is justified by the usual current of the law it is on affidavit before me as chancellor of this kingdom that you both instigated and aided the lady constance de grey a ward of court to fly from the protection and government of the law and therefore attachment issued against your person and you stand committed for contempt you had better sir sue for grace and pardon than aggravate your offence by such unbecoming demeanour thou hast said well and wisely my good wolsey joined in the king whose heat had somewhat subsided. Standing thus reproved, Sir Payan Walton, answer touching the charges you have brought against one Sir Osborne Morris, and if you speak truly to our satisfaction, you shall have favour and lenity at our hands. Say, sir, do you still hold to that accusation? All I have to reply to your grace, answered the knight, resolved, even if he fell himself, to work out his hatred against Sir Osborne with that vindictive rancour that the injurer always feels towards the injured. All that I have to reply is that what I said was true, and that if I had stated all that I suspected, as well as what I knew, I should have made his treason look much blacker than it does even now. "'Do you understand, France?' demanded Henry, turning to Francis. "'Shall I translate his answers to show you his true meaning?' The King of France, however, signified that he comprehended perfectly, and Sir Payan, after a moment's thought, proceeded. I should suppose your grace could have no doubt left upon that traitor's guilt, for the charge against him rests not on my testimony, 
but upon the witness of various indifferent persons, and upon papers in the handwriting of his friends and abettors. "'Villain!' muttered Sir Caesar between his teeth. "'Hypocritical snake-like villain!' Both the king and Sir Payen heard him, but Henry merely raised his hand as if commanding silence, while the eyes of the traitorous knight flashed a momentary fire as they met the glance of the old man, and he proceeded, "'I had no interest, your grace, in disclosing the plot I did, though, had I done wisely, I would have held my peace, for it will make many my enemies, even many more than I dreamed of then. I have since discovered that I then only knew one half of those that are implicated.' "'I know them all now,' he continued, fixing his eye on Sir Caesar, "'but as I find what reward follows honesty, "'I shall bury the whole within my own breast.' "'On these points, sir, we will leave our law to deal with you,' replied Henry. "'There are punishments for those that conceal treason, "'and by my halidame no favour shall you find in us, "'unless you make a free and full confession. "'Then our grace may touch you, but not else. "'But to the present question, my bold sir,' Did you ever see Sir Osborne Morris before the day that he was arrested by your order on the charge of having excited the Cornishmen to revolt? And before God we enjoin you, say, are you excited against him by feelings of interest, hatred, or revenge? On my life, replied Sir Payen boldly, I never saw him but on that one day, and as I hope for salvation in heaven, and here he made a hypocritical grimace of piety, I have no one reason but pure honesty to accuse him of these crimes. A low groan burst from behind the tapestry at his reply, and Henry gave an angry glance towards the worthy clothier's place of concealment. But Francis, calling back his attention, begged him to ask the knight in English whether he had ever known Sir Osborne Morris by any other name, or in any other character. Sir Caesar's eyes sparkled, and Sir Payan's cheek turned pale, as Henry put the question, but he boldly replied, "'Never, so heaven help me, I never saw him, or heard of him, or knew him, by any other name than Osborne Morris.' "'Oh, you villainous great liar! Oh, you hypocritical thief!' shouted Jekin Groby, darting out from behind the tapestry, unable to contain himself any longer. "'I don't care, I don't care a groat for anyone, but I won't hear you tell His Grace's Worship such a string of lies.' all as fat and as well tacked together as Christmas sausages. Lord a mercy, I'll tell your graces, both of you, how it was, for you don't know that's clear. This here, Sir Osborne Morris, that you are asking about, is neither more nor less than Lord Darnley, that I was telling your grace of this morning. Lord, now didn't I hear him tell that sweet young lady, Mistress Constance de Grey, all about it? how he could not bear to live any longer abroad in these foreign parts, and how he had come back under the name of Sir Osborne Morris, all for to get your grace's love as an adventurous knight, and then didn't that Sir Payen, yes, you, great thief, you did, for I heard you, didn't he come and crow over him and say that now he had got him in his power, and then didn't he offer to let him go if he would sign some papers? And then, when he would not, didn't he swear a great oath? that he would murder him, saying, he would make his tenure good by the extinction of the race of Darnley. You did, you great rogue, you know you did. And, Lord of mercy, to think of your going about to tell his grace such lies, your own king, too, who should never hear anything but the truth. 
god forgive you and you're a great sinner and the devils will never keep company with you when you go to purgatory but we'll kick you out into the other place which is worse still folks say and now i humbly beg your grace's pardon and i will go back again if you like behind the hangings but i couldn't abear to hear him cheat you like that the sudden appearance of jekin groby and the light he cast upon the subject drew the whole party into momentary confusion sir payan's resolution abandoned him his knees shook and his very lips grew pale sir caesar gazed upon him with triumphant eyes exclaiming die die what hast thou left but to die at the same time wolsey questioned jekin groby who told the same straightforward tale and henry explained the whole to francis whose comprehension of the english tongue did not quite comprise the jargon of the worthy clothier sir payan walton however resolved to make one last despairing effort both to save himself and to ruin his enemies for the diabolical spirit of revenge was as deeply implanted in his bosom as that of self-preservation he thought then for a moment glanced rapidly over his situation and cast himself on his knee before the king great and noble monarch said he in a slow impressive voice i own my fault i acknowledge my crime but it is not such as you think it hear me but out and you yourself shall judge whether you will grant me mercy or show me rigour i confess then that i had entered as deeply as others into the treasonable plot i had betrayed against your throne and life nay more that i would never have divulged it had i not found that the lord darnley had under the name of sir osborne maurice become the duke of buckingham's chief agent and was to be rewarded by the restitution of chilham castle for which some vague indemnity was proposed to me hereafter on hearing it i dissembled my resentment and pretending to enter more heartily than ever into the scheme i found that the ambitious duke reckoned as his chief hope in case of war on the skill and chivalry of this lord darnley who promised by his hand to seat him on the throne i learned moreover the names of all the conspirators amongst whom that old man is one and he pointed to sir caesar who gazed upon him with a smile of contempt and scorn whose intensity had something of sublime thirsting for revenge proceeded sir payan and with my heart full of rage i commanded four of my servants to stop the private courier of the duke when i knew he was charged with letters concerning this sir osborne maurice and thus i obtained those papers i placed in the hands of my lord cardinal but how shall we know they are not forgeries cried henry your honour sir is so gone and your testimony so suspicious that we may well suppose those letters cunning imitations of the good duke's hand we have heard of such things ay marry we have herein happily your grace can satisfy yourself and prove my truth replied sir payan send for the servants whose names i will give examine them and put them to the torture if you will and if you wring not from them that on the twenty ninth of march they stopped by my command the courier of the duke of buckingham and took from him his bag of letters condemn me to the stake but mark me king of england i kneel before you pleading for life grant it to me with but my own hereditary property and buckingham with all the many traitors that are now aiming at your life and striving for your crown shall fall into your hand and you shall have full evidence against them i will instantly disclose all the names 
and give you proof against their chief that to-morrow you can reward his treason with the axe not fear to be called unjust but if you refuse me your royal promise sacredly given here before your brother king to yield me life and liberty and lands as soon as i have fulfilled my word i will go to my death in silence like the wolf and never will you be able to prove anything against them for that letter is nothing without my testimony to point it aright you are bold said henry you are very bold but our subjects good and the peace of our country may weigh with us what think you wolsey and for a moment or two he consulted in a low tone with the cardinal and the king of france i believe my liege says wolsey whose hatred towards buckingham was of the blindest virulence i believe that your grace will never be able to prove his treasons on the duke without this man's help perhaps you had better promise francis bit his lip and was silent but henry turning to sir payen replied the tranquillity of our realm and the happiness of our people overcome our hatred of your crimes and therefore we promise that if by your evidence treason worthy of death be proved upon edward duke of buckingham you shall be free in life in person and in lands never cried the voice of sir caesar mounting into a tone of thunder never and springing forward he caught sir payen by the throat grappled with him but for an instant with a maniacal vigour and drawing the small dagger he always carried plunged it into the heart of the knight with such force that one might have heard the blow of the hilt against his ribs the whole was done in a moment before any one was aware and the red blood and the dark spirit rushing forth together with a loud groan the traitor fell prone upon the ground while sir caesar without a moment's pause turned the dagger against his own bosom and drove it in up to the very haft wolsey drew back in horror and affright francis and henry started up laying their hands upon their swords jekin groby crept behind the arras and the guards rushed in to seize the slayer but sir caesar waved them back with the proud and dignified air of one who feels that earthly power has over him no further sway what fear ye said he turning to the kings and still holding the poniard tight against his bosom as if to restrain the spirit from breathing forth through the wound there is no offence in the dead or in the dying hear me king of england and hear the truth which thou wouldst never have heard from that false caitiff yet i have little time the last moments of existence speed with fast wings towards another shore give me a seat for i am faint they instantly placed for him one of the settles and after gazing around for a moment with that sort of painful vacancy of eye that speaks how the brain reels he made an effort and went on though less coherently all he has said is false i am on the brink of another world and i say it is false as the hell to which he is gone osborne darnley the good the noble and the true the son of my best and oldest friend knew of no plot heard of no treason he was in england but two days when he fell into that traitor's hands he never saw buckingham but once the osborne morris named in the duke's letter is not he one far less worthy who then is he cried the king impatiently give me to know him if you would have me believe never did i hear of such a name but in years long past and a better of perkin warbeck who then is this sir osborne morris ha huh? mother of god name him 
I, King of England, cried the old man, I, who, had he been guided by me, would have taught King Richard of England, whom you style Perkin Warbeck, to wrench the sceptre from the hand of your usurping father, I, whose child was murdered by that dead traitor in cold blood after the rout at Taunton, I, I it was who predicted to Edward Bohun that his head should be highest in the realm of England, I, it is, who predict it still. As he spoke the last words, the old man suddenly drew forth the blade of the dagger from his breast, upon which a full stream of blood instantly gushed forth and deluged the ground. Still struggling with the disparting spirit, he started on his feet, put his hand to his brow. "'I come! I come!' cried he, reeled, shuddered, and fell dead beside his enemy. End of chapter 40